friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll find us under Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Today on Conversations with Consequences, we feel it's time to start talking about the upcoming elections, specifically about issues that really matter to Catholics and other Americans of faith. First, I've invited Alfonso Aguilar on the show. He's president of the Latino Partnership for Conservative Principles, and he's also former chief of the U.S. Office for Citizenship. We want to take a look with him at how Hispanic Americans are assessing the very different party platforms. After that, my good friend and TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson, will join us to discuss a document recently released by the Catholic Association assessing promises made and promises kept by the Trump administration when it comes to issues of life, religious freedom, and family. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Alfonso. Happy to be with you. So, Alfonso, I'm really interested in your work with the Latino Partnership for Conservative Principles. And we were talking before the show, I was telling you that I'm a Cuban-American, but I also grew up in Mexico and I live in Miami. And we like to, we're very fondly, refer to Miami as the capital of Latin America. It um, is, it is. <laughs> you know, and here we have all sorts of types of Hispanics. We have a very mm -hmm. mixed population. But it has always seemed to me, looking across all the different types of Hispanics, that Hispanics are natural conservatives because they have a very strong allegiance to family and to their faith traditions, and also a very exuberant and practical love of life itself. Does this ring true to you? Oh, absolutely. You know, it was Ronald Reagan who, you know, he always had ways of catchphrases to really simplify things, but make, make very deep and profound comments. And he said about Hispanics, who he knew well, you know, having worked in, in California for such a long time, and he, he, he used to say, Hispanics are Republicans, they just don't know it. Oh, it that's wasn't, And it wasn't in a condescending way that he said that. He meant to say that if we engage them, they're going to respond to the values of, of conservatives, love of family, love of country, love of hard work, and individual responsibility. Those are values that we grew up with. And, uh, and yeah, I think that uh, Reagan uh, was, was onto something, and, and what you're saying is totally right. I think Republicans, in a way, have not paid in the past that much attention to, to the Hispanic vote in past decades. Many Hispanics have fallen prey to the racial identity politics that the Democratic, Democratic Party promotes. This idea of victimization, that if we come here, that we're going to be victims, that we're going to be discriminated. But Hispanics who come from Latin America don't want to hear that. They come here to fully assimilate and integrate and become fully American. And, and many, in fact, second generation Hispanics marry outside of the Hispanic culture. And while we celebrate our culture, we're not necessarily, we don't see ex ourselves exclusively as Hispanic. You know, it, it is so sad that, you know, the being Latino and being Hispanic has almost become an idea theology. Uh, when it's not, you know, we we certainly love our families, we love our food, we love our our, our, our Christian roots. But at the end, you know, we want to be, be part of the larger society. First and foremost, we're children of God, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, secondly, we're American. And then, yes, we're Hispanic. But, you know, you were telling me, by your experience as a Cuban-American uh, that lived in, in Mexico, now in the U.S., you cherish all those experiences, but being in the U.S., I'm sure you feel American. Just the same thing with me. You know, people try to always to box me, and, uh, uh, you know, people always think that I'm Cuban because I'm conservative, and to me, that's, you know, great because I love the Cuban community. <laughs> I, I grew up, I was born and, and raised in Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico has the second largest Cuban uh, community of Cubans, uh, uh, 
uh, of, uh, in, in exile. And uh, I went to a, a marriage school for 12 years the, that was started that brother by marriage brothers who had, who had been kicked out of Cuba uh, by Fidel. And he started a school. A lot of the teachers had taught in that school in Cuba. So I had many Cuban uh, teachers. I had many, many of my, my friends in school were the children of Cuban exiles. So I really felt and, and understand that, that, that culture well. So, and we cherish all of that. But at the end, you know, we want to be part of the society in general. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to be typecasted as, oh, here are the Hispanics in their little corner. We want to be part of the larger society. And uh, so we cherish all those values. I'm, I'm born and raised in Puerto Rico. My mother's Italian. Mm-hmm. My father's from Costa Rica, Spanish parents. You know, I, I cherish all of those cultures. And that's great. Something that's great about America, this diversity. But he said that it's not diversity for the sake of diversity. It's diversity within unity unity of principles that define America. Political principles, a shared sense of history, and also the English language because it's important to communicate in English to deliberate and, and to debate in a, in a democracy. Not to say that we should also appreciate our Spanish. Uh, we speak Spanish at home. Actually, we speak Italian as well. You know, it's great to be able to preserve those languages. Sadly, as you know, a lot of our, our uh, you know children stop speaking Spanish and and then, you know, we've seen that by third generation uh, uh, of the children of, of Hispanic immigrants usually can't speak Spanish and, and just speak English. But but in any case, the point is that, you know, being Hispanic is not an ideology. It's, it's being part of, a, of an ethnic community um, with a proud culture, with great values. But at the end, we want to be part of the nation of society. And that's something that I think Democrats don't understand. However, we've seen, <clears throat> I think, uh, a better effort. Perhaps uh, it started with with President Bush uh, at the beginning of, of this century. Uh, I was part of that administration. I, I served as chief of citizenship in the Bush administration. And certainly there was an effort to engage Hispanics. President Bush understood them well, being from Texas. But, you know, even now with, with President Trump, people say, oh, you know, he's never going to do well with Hispanics. But, you know, his message is resonating. And it's an issue. It's a, an issue based message to the Hispanic community. Democrats think that by just playing, you know, the latest Latin music hit or just saying a few words in Spanish and, and having Hispanic faces that that's in or Hispanic candidates, that that's enough to win over the Hispanic vote. But it's not. I mean, all of those things are helpful, obviously. But at the end, Hispanics want to see the positions of candidates. And, and I think Donald Trump is making inroads because he has a message for, of prosperity. Hispanics have seen under Donald Trump the lowest unemployment rate recorded for Hispanics ever, the lowest poverty rate. Millions have left uh, stop receiving food stamps because they've gotten out of poverty. And people understand that and appreciate that. And then also, the Hispanics are people of values, and they appreciate Trump defending life. He's the most pro-life president in our history, uh, expanding Mexico City policy, limiting Title X funding, so it forced Planned Parenthood to stop receiving funding from the federal government. And we know that federal uh, that Planned Parenthood targets the Hispanic community. Mm-hmm. 22% of all abortions are performed on Latina women. They're targeted, they're victims. And so, and he's also defended religious uh, liberty to ensure that that in America, in the public space, even, even in the private sector, we can live according to our beliefs and we're not forced by the federal government to go against our, our most very, uh, our, our most basic uh, principles. So I think that that's why he's making great inroads with the Hispanic community. This is Alfonso mm-hmm. Aguilar. He's the president of the Latino Partnership for Conservative Principles. Alfonso, you're giving us a lot of things that are aligning Hispanic voters towards Trump. A lot of things that he's accomplished in the last four years in Florida, but in Miami, where I am, we are seeing that Trump, his uh, uh, poll numbers among Latinos are much higher than Clinton achieved in 2016. And in fact, I think our plus four, I was reading this morning uh, in the news. And 
But a lot of people might find this surprising. But it, in the beginning, when we were talking, you mentioned that Latinos are. We were talking about Latinos being naturally conservative, and it's. It, I've been thinking that what the Democrats are presenting this time around, especially with in their social issues, is a radical individualism and autonomy that doesn't really sit well with Latinos who are very enmeshed in our families and in our traditions. Oh, oh absolutely. Uh, they've embraced a cultural agenda that it's really extreme. I would describe it as, as cultural Marxism of uh, promoting uh, confrontation on everything, uh, men against women. Everyone against the family. Exactly. Confrontation between among religions and all sorts of confrontation just to divide the country. But you said you mentioned how well President Trump is doing the polls in Miami. It's, it's truly dramatic. The, the latest NBC poll shows that he's leading with Hispanics 50 percent to 46. That is really incredible. And I was asked yesterday, actually, about that poll from a, from a, from a reporter. And and I said, look, you know, it, it's it's. It's, yes, certainly Cuban Venezuelans uh, are, are very happy with the strong position that President Trump has taken on Cuba on reversing the normalization that the Obama administration started with Cuba, which actually led to the consolidation of power, not only of the regime in Cuba, but also the regime in Venezuela, That's right. because that strengthened the regime in Cuba, which allowed them to intervene in Venezuela and, and be able to support uh, the Maduro regime. There are 40,000 Cuban agents operatives in, in Venezuela. So, yeah, that's a reason, one of the reasons. But also another reason is certainly the defense of life and religious freedom. Cubans, Venezuelans are people of faith and they truly, really appreciate what he has been doing. You know, we have the Democratic Party that is for abortion on demand till, till the very end. We saw this this past four years, a Democratic-led House of Representatives not willing to pass a resolution condemning infanticide. Mm -hmm. Because sadly, we know that in many abortion clinics, often children are born alive, and instead of, and once they're born alive, they should be kept alive, right? Well, no, they have a procedure to actually put them to death. Clearly described by the current governor of Virginia on a radio show. This is really makes people wary, and, and, and I think uh, that's one of the reasons why Latinos in, in Southern Florida are so supportive. I, I should say also in the on the international stage, this is the president that went to the United Nations to the opening of the General Assembly of the United Nations last year, and he said that there is no global right to abortion, that he would fight against efforts by multilateral organizations to try to impose abortion on other countries. And that wasn't only a speech. You know, I do a lot of work at the Organization of American State. I'm also a, a consultant to the uh, Mission of the Holy See to the OAS, and we saw the Inter-American uh, Human Rights Commission, imagine a human rights commission promoting the legalization of abortion in the region, which is incredible. That is incredible. Well, Secretary Pompeo decided to reduce the funding to the commission because under U.S. law, you cannot lobby for, uh, you, they, you cannot u use U.S. funds to lobby for or against abortion in the region. That had never been done. Reducing funds to a multilateral organization over abortion so it's really incredible expanding Mexico City policy. So uh, we're not even giving money to organizations that refer people to abortions or talk about abortion as a as a possibility. This is, is very important. Going back to the domestic side, the, the nomination of good pro-life judges, and I think we're still we still need one or two more to be able to reverse Roe versus Wade. And when we pray that that happens, and what a great victory would that be for life in the U.S., but I think also around. The, uh, around the world. Earlier this week, Alfonso, I was in the Ermita, which is the mm -hmm. here in Miami. It's the shrine to Our Lady of Charity of El Cobre, who she's the patroness of Cuba. It was her feast day on the day of Nativity of Our Lady. The shrine was packed with with people 
some of them newly arrived from Cuba, some long ago arrived, and some second or third generation, and all with a very a very vivid and fervent faith that drove them no, to make that visit to the shrine uh, on that day. And what's interesting to me in this is that I do think that, that President Trump has uh, tapped into that desire for religious liberty that Hispanics feel, and that I know that if they're paying attention, and we are paying attention, has been under, under threat for a long time from the left. And Joe Biden, he has promised to keep uh, harassing the Little Sisters of the Poor, for instance, over the contraceptive mandate. Um, Imagine the Little Sisters of the Poor. Yeah, they, they use big government, in this case Obamacare, to try to impose on a religious congregation, try to, to force them to provide to their employees abortive contraception as part of, the, of their health care insurance. Although the health care that they provide their employees, President Trump stood with the sisters. They also, the Obama administration also tried to impose that on business owners of faith. Remember the, the sure. famous uh, Hobby, Hobby Lobby, Lobby case, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Which was an important key Supreme Court decision, basically saying that religious freedom also applies to businesses. If you cannot, the federal government cannot force you to do something against your faith. But it's, it's not only the attacks, you know, using federal laws to try to impose on to, to limit religious freedom. Kamala Harris has also attacked believing Catholics. On one occasion, uh, she went after somebody who had been appointed to the federal court, federal district court in Nebraska for being a member of the Knights of Columbus, calling it an all-male organization that it's anti-women. Well, because they hold the position, you know, the views of the Catholic Church. Imagine, there are Knights of Columbus chapters everywhere in every single parish, and Hispanics actively participate. Yeah, and doing doing tremendous good all over the world. Absolutely. And look, at the end, I I think we should, the main issue that should guide us as, as Catholic voters is, is life. You know, people say, well, you know, there are other issues where I don't agree with the president or I don't agree with his behavior, the way he talks, is not very Christian. But, and then there may be some, some legitimate points there, right? People don't agree on everything. But you know, the Holy Father, Pope Francis, uh, at the beginning of the year, met with U.S. bishops. And he said that abortion is a preeminent political and social issue of today in the United States, a preeminent priority. Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, when he was prefect of the Congregation uh, for the Doctrine of the Faith, wrote that it's just not another issue. There are different issues. Obviously, you know, as, as Catholics, we care about immigration, we care about health care, we care about the economy, but there are issues that are morally are more important than others. And certainly abortion is one of them. Because on the other issues, immigration, the economy, those are prudential issues, right? We can have different points of view. But on abortion, that's a black and white issue. And that's not only from a Catholic perspective. That's also from a natural law perspective. Life starts at conception. That's a scientific truth, not only a, a religious truth. So that's why when we look at candidates, look at the candidates who favor life. So so that's a very important point to make to, to Catholic voters who are undecided. I totally uh, I totally agree with you, Alfonso. That has to be number one and always for people of, of conscience, really. You don't even have to have faith to understand the primacy of putting the, the dignity of the human person uh, right in front of all your priorities when it comes to going to the voting booth. But there's a, a, two other issues that I think may be mo- motivating uh, Hispanics or could motivate Hispanics uh, at the voting booth um, as well. One of these, I'll mention both of these to you and you tell me what you think. One of these, I think, is school choice. Uh, and and there's obviously a Catholic connection here and a Catholic um, part of this because of uh, our parochial schools that are in danger and have been closing all over the country with this COVID pandemic. Uh, school choice and also um, the disorder that we're seeing in so many American cities that are, uh, that is, this, these areas of disorder are um, affecting poor and minority neighborhoods, many of them yep. Hispanics, yep. with a terrible infliction after all these months of COVID and lockdown. 
Absolutely. School choice, it's a very important issue. We have a great champion of school choice in our Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. Even mm-hmm. before being Secretary of Education, she was an advocate for school choice. You know, every child in America should have access to quality education. And if public schools are not willing to provide that, then parents should have the ability to move their children with you know, state money to a a private school. And Donald Trump is very supportive of that. And he wants to continue to expand that school choice agenda in the next term. Certainly for Hispanics, parochial schools are so important. I have so many friends that have their children in parochial schools. The great thing is it's quality education and it's not expensive. Yes, and so, so true. It, it is, and, and especially for people of faith, where what we're seeing in public schools, uh, curriculums that mm. promote anti-values, right? Well, very, that, very dangerous uh, ideologies in the public schools. This whole idea of uh, gender identity, right? That gender is not determined anymore by biology, which is incredible because I thought they were supposed to be the people of science. Well, I guess they don't believe anymore in, in chromosome X and Y. Mm -hmm. And so gender is fluid. Children are taught that your sex is defined by you, by the identity you choose instead of by biological sex. I mean, this is really troubling. That goes against science. That certainly goes against faith. That goes against reason. So people are legitimately concerned about what their children are being taught. So they want to look for alternatives and they should have alternatives. So what school choice allows to create a system of, of, of incentives where even public schools, they're good public schools, you attract students and people. And I know I, I live in in right outside of Washington, Maryland, where we have some outstanding, incredible public schools and, and, and people want to send their kids to those public schools. But if there is no competition, if you if you think that you're always going to receive that money and there's no incentive to to improve, then they're going to provide a very mediocre education. And I don't think we should continue with a system like that. So I, I I think school choice creates that environment of competition that can help improve public schools and also private schools. But people should have that choice. In terms of of security, it has become an important issue of law and order. The Democrats ignored it because it was happening mostly in in non-battleground states that they always win, like Portland, uh, Oregon, or, or Seattle. And they just ignored it. Only President Trump was talking about it. He basically, they were basically attacking him for saying that they were mostly peaceful protesters. I don't know if the majority were peaceful or not, but I can tell you there was a large component that were very violent. They didn't even talk about it in the in, in the Democratic Convention until they started saying that it was having an effect mm-hmm. in Wisconsin which is a battleground state with, you know, the whole thing in, in Kenosha. Vice President Biden started talking about it all of a sudden, that violence is not good. Do you think Antifa and the Black Lives Matter movement, do you think Hispanics are moved by these? I think By so. that, uh, uh, coupled with violence? I think they realize that Antifa exists. You know, we have Democrats saying that Antifa does not exist. But, you know, I think Hispanics know. And also Hispanics who are native, uh, foreign-born immigrants or, or children of immigrants, they understand this movement. They've seen them in you action know, and they've seen them succeed. It's a coalition of traditional Marxists, cultural Marxists, radical LGBT activists, radical abortionists, with, with all sorts of crazy demands. And what is their theme? What is their call? No justice, no peace. So if you don't agree to our demands, we won't allow for peace. Now, some will do it peacefully, right? Just go out, demonstrate and, and annoy people. That's a way to do it. That's peaceful demonstration. You know, Gandhi did it, but uh, and Martin Luther King. But there are others who are, when they say no peace, they literally mean no peace of vandalism, destroying property, harassing people. And, and that's not a small component of those activists. So in Minnesota, it's where uh, become where it started with in, in Minneapolis. It, right now, the polls are tied because the governor, the Democratic governor and the Democratic mayor of Minneapolis, 
haven't done anything to support the police and to even use the National Guard to put things in order, to uh, to reestablish law and order. And that's why a state that a, pres- a Republican presidential candidate has not won in 48 years since Richard Nixon, now President Trump is tied with, with Joe Biden. Uh, you can't underestimate this. You can talk about the reasons why this is happening, but it is happening. So short term, you have to say, what are we going to do? When this is happening and you have a large component of people engaging in vandalism, you have to use the police. But then you have Democrats talking about the defunding the police. Well, when that type of violence is happening, you don't want to send an army of social workers. No. You want to send you want to send police. Thank Alfonso, the social workers would choose to stay home. <laughs> Probably. You know, the, the most basic thing that people expect from government is to keep their community safe, right? So I, I think it has become an issue. I think that Democrats ignored it because they were trying to police a radical left. That's part of their base. They're starting to talk about it right now. But frankly, I don't think any anyone's going to take them seriously. It is an important issue. But, you know, finally, I, I think it's also important to talk about immigration because for a long time, Democrats have said, you know, Hispanics are just racist, anti-immigrant, and, you know, we want comprehensive reform. They can't even define what comprehensive reform is. And look, uh, I think... President Trump, even on immigration, President Trump has shown that he's not the monster that Democrats said he was going to be on immigration. To this date, there have been less deportations in this administration than under the Obama administration at this point. And this president also called on Congress to give a path to citizenship to over a million dreamers, those who entered illegally when there were minors, a path to citizenship. And I was there, I was went to the White House for meetings and uh, went to the Hill to see if we could get a deal done. Democrats were not willing to negotiate because they want an issue, they don't want a solution. So even on immigration, the president actually has been very good. And let me tell you, we need border security. The the fence and Democrats and Republicans have always supported border fencing. Now it's become an issue because Trump likes to talk about it. But border security measures are very important because sadly, sadly, our southern border has become a hub for sex trafficking and for child trafficking. This is, after abortion, I would say the biggest issue of our time. It's supply and demand. Children are taken from their families all over Latin America and all over the world, and they're shipped through the southern border, and there's a demand here for that, sadly. That is super Uh, sad, Alfonso. And you know what? I want to to talk more about immigration, but we're out of time, and maybe, Alfonso, before the election, you'll come back. And we oh, can, absolutely. and you can join us again, and we can have uh, maybe a whole segment on immigration, and um, because it's it, it really it's a it's a fascinating topic, and it, it affects so many of our Latino brothers and sisters in the United States. Absolutely. Um, so thank you for joining us today and shedding some light on the political landscape for us. And uh, again, we'll see you back soon. And where can our listeners learn more about your projects, Alfonso? They can go to latinopartnership.org, latinopartnership.org. Well, thank you so much. All righty, take care. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we continue our discussion on politics and what Catholics should be concerned with on this coming election. I'm happy to have my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson, back with me. Good afternoon, Maureen. Good afternoon. It's great to be chatting with you, Gracie. So we're heading into election season. It's going to be a doozy, and it's going to be really exciting, and there are lots of things for Catholics, people of faith, to be looking at. So one thing that I feel is very helpful and I know you feel is also very helpful Maureen is that the Catholic Association our Catholic Association just recently released a list of President Trump's accomplishments for pro-life Americans and people of faith so it's called promises made promises kept we feel that it's very important to understand when an incumbent is looking to be re-elected what did he promise people of faith and what did he deliver on these last four years that's right Gracie and of course 
as Catholic voters, in one sense, we're like any other voters. We're concerned about so many different issues because we care about the economy. We care about how our leaders are dealing with the pandemic. We share values about how we want to help the poor, solve problems with our immigration system. But these are matters of prudential judgments. A lot of Catholics have very different opinions on these things. But there's a whole nother category of issues about which within the Catholic community, there's really no debate on Catholic teaching. There are certain foundational issues, certain core issues that we have very clear guidance on, issues like the right to life or conscience rights. Because of course, abortion is always an intrinsic evil. It's always morally wrong. So we're obliged in our voting to stand up for these voiceless children and consider that when we vote. And that's why Pope Francis has said that the life issue was really the preeminent issue that we need to consider. And also, of course, in this category, our conscience rights, um, our right to practice our faith in the public square. And then one of the other issues we were going to talk about, because this is becoming more important to our ability to practice our faith, and that's the right of parents to educate their children in the faith. Because this, with the kind of public school monopoly and the public education system and a lot of the indoctrination that's happening there, that is really threatening our right to educate our children and bring them up in the faith. So a lot of issues to talk about. So some of the accomplishments that we want to shine a a light on, first of all, human dignity, second of all, religious liberty, and then things like school choice. The first one we want to talk about, we're actually going to talk about later because it's become a very big topic this week, how Trump has transformed the judiciary by picking rule of law judges. And it's a big topic this week because President Trump just released his list of potential nominees for the Supreme Court in case of a second term. Over the past four years, there's been a real transformation of the judiciary going on as President Trump has appointed constitutionalist justices to the Supreme Court and over 200 federal judges to the lower courts. So a lot of people don't know about what's happening at the lower courts and the transformation there, but there have been over 200 amazing federal judges appointed there. And as you mentioned, President Trump announced this new list, a revised list of potential Supreme Court nominees. So I know we're going to come, we're going to circle back and talk about that in a few minutes. Second on our list, we have a pretty amazing achievement for the pro-life community, which is to have a sitting president attend the March for Life. That's right. So both President Trump and Vice President Mike Pence have come to speak and address the crowd in person at the March for Life, which is really an unprecedented thing. And the Trump administration has done so many things on the pro-life issue to stand up for the rights of the unborn, whether it's pushing for pro-life legislation like a ban on late-term abortions in the State of the Union address or protecting the right to life in U.S. foreign policy. This is something that doesn't get a lot of press, but it's incredibly important. Some people are familiar with the Mexico City policy, which says that we're not going to promote abortion as a method of birth control overseas as part of our foreign policy, because under many of our democratic presidents, that's exactly what we've done as part of our foreign policy. So President Trump even expanded that policy. It's called the Protecting Life and Global Health Assistance Policy, and it was expanded to cover over $8 billion of U.S. foreign aid. So that's a huge win for the pro-life movement, as well as President Trump early on in the administration notified Congress that he would veto any legislation that weakened any pro-life policy. So this was an incredibly important thing for us to be able to hold on to the Hyde Amendment, which prevents taxpayer funding of abortion, because of course, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in control of the House of Representatives have tried repeatedly to repeal that Hyde Amendment so that there would be taxpayer funded abortion. But President Trump stopped that just with his very firm veto threat. So many accomplishments on the pro-life issue. Yeah, you've already mentioned number five and number four for us. But let me circle back to number three. Third on the list is the little sisters of the poor who have been harassed for many, many years now over their refusal to fund contraception, including abortifacient contraception through their health plans under Obamacare. President Trump 
has stood up for the Little Sisters. He signed an executive order on conscience protections. And of course, the Little Sisters finally won their fight at the Supreme Court. Uh, if Joe Biden becomes president, he has promised to keep harassing the Little Sisters. The Trump administration has taken many, many actions through executive order and Justice Department actions to protect conscience rights and religious liberty. So they issued a rule on conscience rights for health care workers. They've defended religious liberty and conscience rights in the courts. Just for example, uh, in Washington, D.C., the government had a ban on Christmas ads on metro buses in the, in the underground metro. During Lent, the Catholic Church was trying to run ads, uh, but mm -hmm. the D.C. government prevented that because D.C. is a federal enclave. The president was able to issue an order overriding that. And the Justice Department, the Trump administration Department of Justice under Attorney General Bill Barr has established religious liberty as a priority of the department. They've released all kinds of memos and initiatives and task force to be on top of this issue of religious liberty to protect people like the Little Sisters of the Poor. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm speaking with my dear friend and colleague Maureen Ferguson at the Catholic Association about our list on promises made, promises kept of the Trump administration. You can find it at thecatholicassociation.org forward slash promises top 10. So Maureen, within that top 10, we have at number six, called on Congress to pass a ban on late-term abortions, the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, which offers protections for babies who survive abortions, and also vowed to veto any bill weakening pro-life policies, including repeal of the longstanding Hyde Amendment. President Trump has used every opportunity to press for a ban on late-term abortions in supporting this pain-capable unborn child protection act and also in support of the Hyde Amendment. Whereas Joe Biden, for a long time, he had supported the Hyde Amendment, but sadly when he decided to run for president, he very quickly caved on that. And Joe Biden is now calling for taxpayer-funded abortion. And Speaker Pelosi has said that she will make this one of the first acts in the new Congress to repeal the Hyde Amendment and have taxpayer-funded abortion, which sadly means when the government is funding something, sadly you get more of it when the government is subsidizing it. And so Maureen, ab abortions it, will increase. Isn't it true that most Americans are against tax-funded abortion? Overwhelmingly. You know, there's been a long-term consensus in the country when abortion was first legalized. The Congress very quickly moved to say, well, abortion may be legal now, but we're not going to force people to be morally complicit and have the federal government funding and therefore supporting abortion. So it was seen as somewhat government neutrality. Now, I would not see it that way, but but that was a longstanding consensus. And even most Democrats have traditionally supported the Hyde Amendment to say that at least the federal government shouldn't be supporting abortion. Another important thing on the list of the top 10 and very important to me, I'm, I'm a mother at our local parochial school now for my, I think it's my 23rd or 24th year I've been a mom. Somebody should make me a, a statue <laughs> when I finally finish. And this wonderful parochial school was a recipient of the CARES Act's Paycheck Protection Program that President Trump made sure was available to religious institutions. That's right. So as part of the pandemic, many religious nonprofits uh, had to shut down, like Catholic schools, and just like any other small businesses, they suffered economic devastation as a result of the pandemic. So the government passed the Paycheck Protection Program as part of the pandemic relief bills, which helped people to keep their employees on the payroll so that they didn't have to fire them. So, for example, the Catholic schools that my children attend were able to apply for this Paycheck Protection Program, and they were able to keep their bus drivers on the payroll, for example. They didn't have to fire their teachers. They didn't have to let people go. And now they're able to reopen this fall because they were able to receive those forgivable loans from the government's pandemic relief program. And the Trump administration has taken other steps as well to support private school education or non-public, including parochial school education. And a huge move early on in the administration 
administration was that they expanded tax-deferred education savings accounts for parochial school education. So if you haven't tapped into that, if you're not paying your child's Catholic school bill through a tax-deferred education savings account, you should look into it. Oh, that's a good tip for all of us. I have to tell my husband. He's in charge of finances, but that's a wonderful tip. So Maureen, we don't have a lot of time left, and I want to make sure that we come back to judges. Back in 2016, many Americans who went to the polls and voted, they made their decision based in some part on the Supreme Court, knowing that whoever was president was going to get the opportunity of nominating judges for those very important positions because the Supreme Court holds so much power over the lives of all Americans. So just this week, President Trump released his list of possible nominees. So you've uh, taken a good look at the list, and what do you think about it? Which, what are the names that uh, mean something to you? Well, I have to tell you, this new list is incredibly exciting. And as you said, the issue of Supreme Court justices in the last election, 20% of voters said that was the deciding factor in their vote. That's a huge and number. It's a huge number. And this year, the poll question was asked a little bit differently. It's a decisive issue for 64% of people. So the Supreme Court, I think more and more people are recognizing just how important the Supreme Court is for protecting our freedoms. And a lot of people are saying, well, you know, the president, there may be a lot of things he says and does that are not my cup of tea, they're not my style, but I know how important that Supreme Court is, so I really need to consider that when I'm when I'm deciding for whom mm-hmm. to vote. And a lot of people are getting more educated on the Supreme Court. And, you know, there have been some disappointments in the last term, but when you look at the big picture and the real transformation that has happened at the judiciary on all levels, it's really exciting. So it's very, very thrilling for Supreme Court nerds like me who have been eagerly anticipating the updated list of potential Supreme Court nominees. And it just came out. And there are so many amazing names on this list. So many stellar judges. So many, um, there are many, many women on the list, which is very exciting to me as a conservative woman to see on the list all these female judges who, Um, just would make incredible constitutionalist judges on the Supreme Court. Maureen, before we get into uh, specifics about some of these uh, people on the list, what is it about, what what is it that connects all of these people on the list uh, of of Trump's nominees? What about their style or their their worldview when it comes to, to their work? Well, I think the first thing is that they're well qualified, that they're judicial rock stars uh, in order to make the cut of the list in the first place. I think also in order to kind of make the cut to get on the list at all, there needs to be a demonstrated commitment to the text of the Constitution and to faithfully interpreting the Constitution and not thinking of oneself as a judge, as sort of a super legislature, which is kind of how the Supreme Court has um veered into that territory in recent years, which is what has given us Roe v. Wade um, and and many subsequent decisions. So I, I think those are kind of the first two things. They need to be really well qualified. They need to have demonstrated a commitment to the Constitution and then so demonstrating competence, but also um, a demonstration of a certain level of courage so that they're not going to blow around with the winds uh, once they you know get their lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court or, allow, or also allow public um, the media pressure and the, and the pressure of public it, it, shaming no to, to make them uh, that that's exactly right because the editorial page of the Washington Post can be quite yeah. vicious <laughs> at times and one needs courage to be able to stand up to that and to just you know keep one's nose down and faithfully interpret the constitution um and not cave into political pressures so i so think looking, embedding, so looking at the list who who jumps out at you 
Well, honestly, there are so many that jump out at me. There are some that are well-known, like Amy Coney Barrett, who's um, a judge on the Seventh Circuit. Uh, She has a demonstrated record of um, very courageous commitment to the Constitution. There are so many others on the list that are just fantastic. Um, There's a a new woman who is very young. Um, Her name is Allison Jones Rushing. Um, She's a circuit court judge. There's Deputy White House Counsel Kate Todd is just a fantastic and brilliant woman. Um, It's just, I mean, the list goes on and on. There's um, uh, Charles Kennedy, who's from your home state of Florida. He was a congressman for many years, and now he's uh, the Chief Justice of the Florida Supreme Court. He was the chief sponsor, actually, of the partial birth abortion bill many years ago when he was in Congress. Oh, nice. And he's he's just fantastic. Um, senators were added to the list. Senator Tom Cotton, Senator Josh Hawley. I mean, it's really an exciting and somewhat outside-the-box kind of a list so it's um the list was just released so i think everyone's still just digesting it now but it's very very exciting well that does sound exciting maureen and um i think we're looking at a very exciting time in the next uh, for the next couple months while, while we go into the election and well, uh, i hope our listeners will keep tuning in to hear um our assessment and our guests of uh, how all these issues um, and possibilities affect people of faith especially catholics so So thank you so much, Maureen, for joining us today on Conversations with Consequences. Good to be on with you, Gracie. And for our listeners, if you want to read the list of promises made um, at the Catholic Association, go to thecatholicassociation.org forward slash promises top 10. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. When Jesus will talk to us about his mercy and how that mercy is meant to transform us to love others with the same merciful love with which he has loved us first. The conversation begins with a question from Peter. If my brother sins against me, how often must I forgive him? We know that one of the most difficult aspects of living the Catholic faith is the teaching about loving even our enemies, forgiving those who repeatedly wrong us, hate us, and persecute us. When people hurt us, we think it's magnanimous and generous to give them a second chance. If we forgive them a third time, we think we're ready for canonization. But Jesus' standards for us are higher. He wants us to become as merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. And each of our autobiographies shows clearly that God has given us way more than one or two spiritual mulligans. The rabbis taught, based on a misinterpretation of a passage from the prophet Amos, that we needed to forgive three times to give someone, in other words, a fourth chance. Peter, after asking Jesus how often he must, be, he must forgive, while he was waiting for Jesus' response, multiplied the rabbi's figure by two and added one, saying, as many as seven nines. This would be an almost astronomical standard, giving someone an eighth chance before writing someone off as incorrigible. Jesus replied, however, no, 77s. Whether that means 70 times 7 or 490, or 70 plus 7, 77 times, really doesn't matter, because 7 is a number already with a sense of infinity. It means to forgive without limit. It says Peter must forgive every time a brother or sister wrongs him. What Jesus says to Peter, he also says to you and me. We too must never refuse forgiveness to anyone who has wronged us, even and especially those who have really deeply wounded us. We must forgive fathers and mothers who have hurt us when we were younger, brothers and sisters who have betrayed us, friends who have deceived us, priests or nuns who have scandalized us, assailants who have attacked us, and terrorists who have mercilessly killed those closest to us. Jesus tells us why we must do this, by means of an incredible parable he gives us, which I've always found is one of his most powerful, the parable of the two debtors. 
the first debtor is brought into a king for owing what our translation says is a huge amount. The actual term used by St. Matthew is 10,000 talents. A talent was equivalent to 6,000 denarii, and a denarius was a full day's wage. That means that the man owed 60 million days of work, something that would have taken him 164,271 years to pay off. His request, after he had fallen on the ground and begged for time to pay it back, was totally absurd. He would have needed to live to be 165,000 years old. To monetize his debt in today's terms in order to better understand it, if he were making $100 a day or twelve fifty an hour, he would have owed $6 billion. But the text tells us that when the king saw the man on the ground begging absurdly for time, his heart was moved with pity, and he forgave the entire debt. He didn't even make him pay what he could. He forgave everything. We're supposed to see in this what God does for us. He forgives our entire debt, 10,000 talents worth, 70, 77, 490 times over, and more. His merciful generosity is the most distinctive reality about the world. But then the parable describes that the servant, who had been literally forgiven billions, who was rich in merciful love, went off and met a servant who owed him a hundred denarii, a hundred days' wages, something that could be paid off in a few months. The second debtor, using the very same words and actions as the first, fell down, begging for time to pay it off. The first debtor must have recognized that the phrase and actions being employed reminded him of his own recent condition. But instead of sharing mercy with the second debtor, instead of even giving him just time to pay it off, he went up and started to choke him in anger and threw him into prison until his family was able to raise the hundred denarii, in today's money, $10,000 at $100 a day, to pay him back. It was obvious that he hadn't been transformed by the incredible act of mercy of the king. He received the king's debt forgiveness superficially. Even on the very day when he had been forgiven billions, he couldn't give another person time to pay back the debt he owed. At that point, the other servants of the king, seeing the behavior of their colleague, were saddened and disturbed and went to the master, not so much to tattletale as to let him know of what was happening in his kingdom, that his standard of mercy was not being lived. The master called in the first debtor, called him wicked, and asked the poignant question, I forgave you your entire debt because you begged me to. Should you not have had pity on your fellow servant as I had had pity on you? Rather than paying the mercy forward, he stifled the flow. And he was sent to prison until he should pay back the last penny, something that because of the size of the debt was obviously impossible. Because he was unwilling to forgive something small, he would be in prison forever. His lack of forgiveness, rather than what he owed, was what got him sent to an unending incarceration. What are the lessons for us? The first is that we're either merciful like the Father and forgive others their sins against us, or we are, to use Jesus' word, wicked, because we don't extend to our fellow servants the pity the Lord has first shown us. We're either merciful or wicked. There's no third option. If we're not merciful to others, we're not faithful to our baptism and Christian identity. Second is about the debt we've incurred to God because of our sins. It's unpayable. We owe more to God than the rising U.S. national debt. There's no way we're ever going to pay it back. We're always debtors, not creditors in the forgiveness department. God the Father did not write off our debt, but sent his Son to pay for us the debt with his own body and blood on the cross. Our sins have incurred an infinite debt that Christ needed to pay. Since we have received that forgiveness and baptism in the sacrament of penance, we're called to go out likewise and forgive others their much smaller debts to us, because nothing anyone could ever do to us, even if he or she were to torture us or kill those closest to us, amounts to what we've done to the Son of God made man through our sin. The third is that God's mercy toward us, which is infinite and everlasting, can be forfeited. In the parable, the master who had written off the $6 billion debt revoked it, when he saw the one he had forgiven refuse similar mercy to the person who owed him. God makes this point emphatically throughout sacred scripture. As Jesus says at the end of today's gospel, so my heavenly father will also do to you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. He says it likewise at the end of the Our Father, when he says, If you forgive others their sins, so will my heavenly father forgive you yours. But if you do not forgive your brother your sins, neither will my heavenly father forgive you yours. In other words, unless we forgive others, we will go to hell. And we won't have to wait for it, because if we harbor that unforgiveness in our heart, we'll already be living a hell on earth. Calling us to forgive in this way, Jesus was calling us to imitate him. 
We know that as he was dying to pay the debt for our sins, he cried out, not in pain, but in mercy, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The them and the they he was referring to were not just Roman soldiers who clearly knew how to crucify someone, but to all of us who, when we sin, really don't have a clue about how our sins crucify and kill our Savior. There's a similar consequential ignorance when we sin against others and others sin against us. Today, Jesus is asking us to make his words our own, to make his love our own, to make his mercy our own. By our receiving it from him in the sacrament of mercy and by our sharing that forgiveness lavishly with others. He was mercy incarnate, has made us rich in mercy like his father. He's restored to us billions that were squandered. And he wants us to spend that merciful love down to the last penny. Let's get started. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. Mm -hmm.